0: in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call plant stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plantstock stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there.
1: One in three adults under the age of 50 have diverticular disease, which costs the U S two and a half billion dollars a year. Colorectal cancer, Affects more than one in twenty adults in their lifetime. In the US right now, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, so the deposition of excess body fat on your liver, is now thought to be the most common cause of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. It's the leading cause of cirrhosis among females requiring liver transplant. It affects up to hundred million people in the US right now. And then you've got, you know, less harmful but very bothersome and difficult conditions like Irritable Bowel Syndrome, affecting up to 45 million Americans. One in five U.S. adults lives with gastroesophageal reflux disease. Yeah. So right now, the U.S. needs a gut health overhaul.
0: Season three of the Plant Strong Podcast explores those Galileo moments where you seek to understand the real truth around your health and dare to see the world through a different lens. This season we honor those courageous seekers who are paving the way for you and me. So grab your telescope, point it towards your future, and let's get plant strong together. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing off the charts well, and you had a healthy, safe, and fun long July 4th holiday weekend. My family and I were up in Wisconsin, staying on the the shores of this little lake, and we've been going for lots of kayaks and swims, barbecuing lots of plant-strong foods, and playing a ridiculous amount of board games, and it's slowing everything down, and it's just what the doctor ordered. Speaking of what the doctor ordered, today on the Plant Strong Podcast, I am going to be your personal physician's assistant, right alongside the amazing Dr. Alan Desmond. He is a gastroenterologist. I know you've heard that term before, because we've had two other gastroenterologists on the Plant Strong Podcast. In season one, we had Dr. Robin Schutkan, and in season two, we had Dr. Will Bolshewitz, the author of Fiber Fueled. But so Alan is a gastroenterologist. He hails from across the pond in the UK, and he's the author of the new book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. I discovered Alan because my parents have been raving about him for several months, and I think today you're going to see exactly why. His knowledge and expertise of gut health and the microbiome is so vast that We're actually going to break up this conversation into two parts because I want you to digest absolutely everything that he says. From the get-go in our conversation, Alan lays out some super sobering statistics for gut health in the U.S. Check this out. One in three adults under the age of 50 have diverticular disease. Colorectal cancer will affect more than 1 in 20 adults in their lifetimes. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is off the charts. And 97% of Americans are deficient in fiber. If all health begins in the gut, then I think it's fair to say that the U.S. needs a major overhaul. And that's what we're here to do with Dr. Desmond over the next two weeks. In part one today, We're going to whip out the prescription pad and give you the top 10 prescriptions for better health. But unlike most prescriptions that simply treat the problem, these prescriptions get to the root of the issue and help you solve these problems. And the best part, they don't involve taking more, you guessed it, pills. This is just about beautiful, nutritious, whole plant strong foods, the optimal diet for health and longevity. So with that, my friends, the doctor is in the house and now it's your turn to spend some quality time with Dr. Alan Desmond. Well, first of all, what is a gastroenterologist?
1: Well, can I just say, Rip, it's, an, it's a pleasure and an honor to spend time with you, man. I've been such an admirer of your work, your family's work, and everything you guys do. Um, everything from your dad's work at the Cleveland Clinic to Engine 2 and everything else. So thank you for letting me spend time with you and hang out with you and your audience. I truly oh. appreciate it.
0: Oh, a- yeah. This is going to be a blast. And, and you're, are you, am I talking to you right now, like across the pond? Where are you? Are you in the UK? Yeah, I'm from
1: Ireland, um, Rip. I, I'm from County Cork, from Blarney. I grew up near the Blarney Castle, if anyone's heard of the Blarney Castle and the Blarney Stone. Um, so if you kiss the Blarney Stone, you get the gift of the gab. I've, <laughs> kissed, it, I've, it, I've kissed it seven times. So let's see, let's see how we go. But yeah, I live in the UK now. I live in England, southwest England. So I fell in love with um, um, the lady who is now my wife, Hannah. So, so an English girl. So I've moved over here like 10 years ago. Um, So I'm speaking to you from across the
0: pond. Absolutely. Oh, so let's get back to... So what exactly is a gastroenterologist? Well, a gastroenterologist
1: is a doctor who specializes in diagnosing and treating digestive problems. So I spend... If you... Were looking for me um, on any day of the week. You would probably find me at the hospital, and if you go into the hospital, you will either find me on the ward doing a ward round with my team, with the um, with the other doctors who are on my team, the junior doctors as we call them in the UK, maybe with the dieticians and the nurses, and we'll be doing the round. We'll be going to see patients, reviewing the results, and trying to make a plan. To help them to get better. If I'm not in, cl- in the ward, I'll be in my clinic, seeing patients at the outpatient department. Um, and other than that, I'll be down in the endoscopy unit doing diagnostic and therapeutic procedures like gastroscopy and colonoscopy and looking inside people's um, digestive tracts with a slim tube, a camera, scoping, as we say, to, get, to look up close and personal at the living organ that I focus on treating the digestive tract, which is one of the unique things about being a gastroenterologist is that we've got this incredible technology that allows us to, you know, we take your story, we do the lab work and everything, but ultimately we get to look inside RIP, which is incredible. So we get to look at the living organ and watch it moving and functioning. And we can often make a diagnosis just by the appearances of your internal organs, which makes gastroenterology pretty
0: unique. How many, how many different digestive tracts would you say you've looked at?
1: Thousands, (laughs) like literally thousands. Um, maybe, yeah, it must've been, yeah, it must now be in the high thousands. I've been putting tubes inside people's bodies to look at their digestive tracts, um, since probably, yeah, for at least 14 to 15 years. Um, so I've seen a lot and it's, it's, it's fascinating because, um, You know, people generally look pretty much the same on the inside. You know, whatever your race, color, size, age, um, the insides look pretty consistently the same, more or less, um, in most people, which which always um, which always surprises people to hear. But, but, um, it, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating asset. One of the, one of the reasons that I got really interested in gastroenterology was that ability to actually look at the organ that you're trying to fix and form an opinion of the disease process by looking at it. But, you know, gut health is, is, is so important. It's crucial. If you don't have good digestive health, you're not going to enjoy your day. Mm. If you, if, you know, we, what do we do? We get up in the morning. We think about breakfast. We finish our breakfast. We're we're packing our lunch to take to the office, or we're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. You know, we might call our wife or partner on the way home, and what do we say? Hey, this is what I'm doing for dinner tonight. Um, You know, or what shall we do for dinner tonight? It's so crucial. We use dinner to like mark occasions and birthdays and weddings and everything. So food is absolutely crucial, and the enjoyment of food is absolutely crucial. So if you've got poor digestive health, you're in trouble. But it goes beyond that. I mean, I I often say to people when they are surprised to hear that I care so much about digestive health in terms of overall health, but it shouldn't surprise us at all. You know, the fifth century BC, let's go way back. Yeah. Okay. Let's go way back. So let's go way back. Hippocrates, the, the father of modern medicine, two and a half uh, two and a half thousand years ago, he taught his disciples that all disease begins in the gut. Mm-hmm. So when he was teaching his disciples how to take a history and how to cure people, he would put a great emphasis on digestive health and an incredibly great emphasis on food. And we know now, you know, in the in 2021 we know that hidden in that ancient wisdom was an awful lot of truth because not only does food matter so much in terms of our digestive and overall health not only is that true but also in many ways health does begin in the gut and a good digestive health is crucial And this is why I'm so glad to be speaking to you today. And I'm so glad that the book is available in the U.S. right now, because Rip, if all health begins in the gut, and as this conversation goes on, I'm going to convince you and your listeners that it really does. If all health begins in the gut, the U.S. is in trouble, my friend. One in three adults under the age of 50 have diverticular disease, which costs the U.S. two and a half billion dollars a year. Colorectal cancer affects more than one in 20 adults in their lifetime. In the US right now, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, so the deposition of excess body fat on your liver is now thought to be the most common cause of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. It's the leading cause of cirrhosis among females requiring liver transplant. It affects up to 100 million people in the US right now. And then you've got, you know, less harmful but very bothersome and difficult conditions like irritable bowel syndrome affecting up to 45 million Americans. One in five U.S. adults lives with gastroesophageal reflux disease. Yeah. So right now, the U.S. needs a gut health overhaul. Big.
0: (laughs) Well, well said. So the the title of your new book is called The Plant-Based Revolution. I'm sorry, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. why that name? I love it, but why that name?
1: Well, there's two aspects to it. Okay, there's three aspects to it. There's, yes. there's two definite, and then one that I haven't really mentioned to anybody, but I'm going to mention it to you and your listeners. Um, number one, diet. Okay, in the first few pages of the book, I give the definition from the Collins English Dictionary diet, the food that an animal or person eats every day. I want to reclaim that word, Rip. That word, diet, has been stolen and repurposed by a multi-billion dollar weight loss industry. Mm. A multi-billion dollar industry that doesn't work, is not interested in making people healthier, is interested in quick fixes that you can sell and make a whole ton of money from over and over again. Diet. I want to bring that word back to its original meaning, the food that we eat every day. In fact, the original derivation of the word diet had nothing to do with food at all. It referred to your daily habits. So I want to reclaim the word diet, number one. Number two, it is a revolution. This revolution is already on. Even before COVID, more and more people were realizing and becoming better informed on the benefits of building your plate from the foods that have been benefiting human health for generations. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, seeds, leafy greens. People have already switched on to this. They've been hearing about the benefits of a plant-based approach to food from their doctors, from celebrities, from athletes. This revolution is already on. I just want more people to join. I want more people to educate themselves and fill in that huge knowledge gap that generally exists in high-income countries about the role food has in defining our health. So I want them to get on board. I want to tell you the third secret reason that I haven't told anybody. Yes, yes. Okay. It's a tribute to Dr. Atkins.
0: Okay. Dr.
1: Atkins, the new diet revolution, Mm. with all due respect to the gentleman, did more harm in the world of food than anybody ever did before. And I remember reading that book when I was a a medical student and a young doctor and thinking, what the heck? Nobody is going to do this. And then everybody did it. And, you know, taking that, that high meat, high fat, low carb approach did so much damage. So in 2021, I thought, you know what, maybe it's time for another diet revolution, a more evidence-based diet revolution. And I hope this doesn't get me sued by the Atkins Corporation But in a a way, I was kind of it's kind of a a, a kind of a a slight reference to that previous diet revolution because we need a new one. Absolutely.
0: That's awesome. I love that. Um, So you also talk about in the early part of your book how, you know, when it comes to being healthy, what you eat absolutely really matters. And you referenced uh, the Lancet. And a a, a recent study they did called the Eat Lancet. And what was the outcome of that? And this this is probably one of the most prestigious medical journals on the planet. This was a big moment for me,
1: actually, as a gastroenterologist who'd been advising his patients to move towards an unprocessed plant predominant or completely plant-based diet for years, because I'd been reading the research for, for a long time, and whatever condition I was looking at in digestive health, it would say the same thing, okay, unprocess and eat plants. So in 2019, the Lancet Medical Journal published this huge review of the evidence. In fact, the, it was the report of the Eat Lancet Commission, because the, the Lancet, being one of our most prestigious medical journals, tries to answer really important questions. And this, the really important question that they were answering with this commission was, what should I eat? What should we eat for optimal health? The same question that every single patient asks their gastroenterologist. What should I eat? But they were trying to come up with a blueprint to feed... Everybody in the world, including the 820 million people in the world who don't get enough calories and are living with food poverty, including the three and a half billion people in the world who have an excess of calories and too much of the bad stuff, and they're suffering from all those chronic diseases that fill up our hospitals in countries like the US, the UK, and Ireland. And they wanted this blueprint to tell us how should we aim to feed ourselves globally, in a sustainable and healthy way to make humans the healthiest possible versions of themselves. And having reviewed decades of evidence, their hand-picked panel of globally recognized experts from institutions like Harvard, University of Oxford, University of London, et cetera, whole food plant-based. They came back, looked at all the evidence, and described the planetary health plate. They said that a planetary health plate should consist of half fruits and vegetables, 25% whole grains, and the remainder should be made up of protein-rich plants, such as legumes, small amounts of healthy plant-derived oils, and optionally, small amounts of animal products. But their report, the lengthy report was very clear that the animal products should be regarded as optional. And if you are eating an animal product, you are probably going to be better off not eating that animal product if you have the option. If you're lucky enough to live in a country and have the means that you have an option, then it's always safer and healthier to choose the plants. And if you do choose to consume um, animal products, the amounts that they describe as safe to consume are incredibly low. Just one ounce of chicken or fish per day, like half an egg seven grams of red meat a day, although in their report, they said the safest amount of red meat to consume is probably zero, especially if it was replaced with healthy plant-based sources of protein. They were very, very clear on all this. So this came out in February of 2019, and they estimated that if they could wave a magic wand, then rip and get the whole planet eating like this, that it would prevent almost 12 million preventable deaths globally per year, plus hundreds of millions of fewer cardiac stents, bypasses, courses of chemotherapy for preventable cancers, prescriptions for statins, blood pressure meds, admissions to hospital with perforated diverticular disease, emergency laparotomies. I mean, really, it's so important that the food that we consume is incredibly powerful. And of course, it's not just the Eat Lancet report you talked about this. The British Dietetic Association, the American Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, American Cancer Society, the World Health Organization, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet right now. Did you see, Rip, in August of last year, the letter that the American Medical Association wrote to the USDA?
0: I did not.
1: Okay, so in the middle of a pandemic, the American Medical Association, one of the world's oldest and most respected professional organizations for doctors in the U.S., writes a letter to the US Department of Agriculture who are responsible for the commissioning and writing of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. OK, okay we, can, we can talk about how screwed up that is in a minute. Okay, okay. So the AMA writes a letter to the USDA who were finalizing the new Dietary Guidelines for Americans latest revision, the 2020 revision. And in that letter, they very clearly laid out their argument, their request to the USDA to stop putting dairy and meat in the guidelines as mandatory food groups. And they said the the reasons that they said they shouldn't be in there is because they're not necessary. They're not required for all diets and they are drivers of disease, including cardiovascular disease, heart disease, prostate cancer, and other cancers, including many conditions that disproportionately affect Americans from ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. So that's the American Medical Association saying that you don't need to have meat and dairy in your diet to be healthy, and you'll probably be healthier without it. So, so the Eat Lancet, the AMA, and all of these august professional societies around the world are on the same page. So this is the revolution I'm talking about. Yeah. I was reading, I was reading a, 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 an analysis this week that said that this year and last year are the first two years since the 1960s that meat consumption and meat production has been down globally. So I'm hoping that two years ago, the standard Western diet peaked out, Rip, and that it's now going to be in decline, and the next few years will tell, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, that would certainly be fabulous, as this is, a, this is a trend, a downward trend that just keeps going exponentially. And, 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 and with all these organizations, basically, like you said, singing from the same hem sheet, I think it's just a matter of, is it going to be two years, five years, 10 years before uh, animal products and animal byproducts, I'm not going to say become eradicated, but instead of having, you know, 7% of the population here in the States, for example, be vegetarian or vegan, we're going to, we're going to cross over that, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% of us. It's, it's, it's more important than ever right now. I mean, I, I know as, as
1: we start this conversation, you said, it's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. Food is fun. Delicious food is fun. My book is like really upbeat. It's a very positive book. It's essentially a cookbook, right? Yeah. But, let, but let's just get serious for a second. This trend that I just described has got to continue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we are right now in the US and the UK, we are lucky enough to be just to feel like we are coming out of this pandemic. But this pandemic is still raging globally. Okay. Last August, around the time the AMA were writing to the USDA, asking them to take meat and dairy out of the dietary guidelines, the United Nations issued a report called Breaking the Chain of Transmission, How to Prevent the Next Zoonotic Pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of coronavirus, and they issue a report and guidelines and recommendations for governments around the world to take action now, to prevent this from happening again. And the number one thing that they said that we can each do as individuals, as countries, as nations, the number one thing we can do, each one of us can do to reduce the risk of another pandemic is to eliminate or dramatically reduce the amount of meat that we put on our plate each day. Because the dietary habits that now require a hundred kilos of meat for every adult American every year, or 83 kilos of meat for every British adult every year, necessitate and absolutely require that we keep tens of billions of animals in incredibly unnatural, cramped, unhygienic conditions in a close proximity to each other, and the humans who are involved in handling and processing them into food. So animals and their diseases have never been closer. So the UN is very clear. If we wanna reduce the risk of a future pandemic, we need to really radically overhaul our diets and start eating like the Eat Lancet report had suggested two years before this pandemic. Now, a very smart person, very wise man once said, we don't change, Rip, humans don't change their habits until they experience pain. It's only through realizing the suffering that our daily habits impose on us that we recognize the need for positive change and improve our habits. So right now, as we sit here having this conversation globally, we've lost three and a half million loved ones. Hundreds of millions more people have been infected with this virus and they didn't die, but we're only beginning to understand the long term health effects it has on them. We've been through 18 months where our elderly relatives in care facilities were devastated and the people who survived in elderly care facilities were then condemned to a year of solitary confinement unable to see their, 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 their family and friends. Our kids couldn't go to school. They had to learn how to wear masks and socially distance from everybody. So here's the question. Have we suffered enough mm. to recognize that we need to change? If it doesn't happen now, Rip, I don't think it's ever going to happen.
0: Well, it's got to happen. It's yeah. got to I mean, happen.
1: I mean, haven't, I haven't been a doctor for that long, really. I, I view myself... Still, as as on the learning curve, right? I I graduated, I became a consultant 10 years ago. This isn't the first time I treated patients in hospital who were dying from a zoonotic pandemic. Okay, this time it came from a meat market on the other side of the world. 10 years ago, I was treating patients with swine flu who were dying from a disease that came from pig farms in the southern US. So, Anyway, that's the serious message that I wanted to give to your listeners today. I'm sorry to get all serious, but it's it's just, it's been on my mind lately, man. It, it, things have got to change.
0: Oh, no. I mean, yeah. I, as a physician, this pandemic has affected you in, in ways, uh, I think, a little bit harder than it has affected uh, a lot of other people. But here's the thing. Is that I don't think mainstream media has done an appropriate job connecting the dots so that... Tom, Bill, and Mary understand that you know what this is. This is a zoonotic disease. I don't. I, don't, I bet you that eighty percent of, of, maybe seventy-five percent of Americans don't know what a zoonotic disease is. They're not making the connection. So, yep. but but if they if they had made if they had that knowledge, and understood that the pain that we're experiencing right now is coming in large part because of our insatiable consumption of all, all these animal products. I think, I think I think you're right. I think we would then have the, the massive collective change in the habits. And I've seen some encouraging data, though, Rip. Even before
1: the pandemic, you know, I saw data like 42% of, Amer- of Australians were actively reducing their meat intake for health reasons. I think the Eat Lancet report a couple of years ago did kind of twinge into the mainstream a little bit. Um, and, you know, look, I'm not a fan of junk food. But we live, it, we live in a world now where places like Burger King and McDonald's and are serving vegan meals. You know. So that wasn't happening a few years ago. I'm not saying that a, a vegan Big Mac or whatever is like a healthy choice, but it just shows that this thing has permeated the mainstream. It's, it's no longer a fad, right? It, it's, it's becoming human behavior. It's
0: becoming entrenched. Plant-based is on. Uh, this is the plant-strong era. It is here. It is the plant-strong era. Absolutely. And, and oh yeah, it is not going anywhere. So let's let's take a break from that. I want to I want to ask you as you know as a doctor, you have a, a little section in your book called Doctors' Orders and the Top Ten Prescriptions for Better Health. So if you don't mind, I, I'd like to toss it out there to you, each one of them, and then and then you can kind of riff riff on each one. Does that sound good? Yeah,
1: that sounds like fun. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And then after we do that, I want to talk about, let's go back and talk about the gut, right? Yep. Let's do it. uh, What our listeners can do to really shore up their gut health, their immune systems and, and all that. So let's start with number one on your list is eat a diversity of plants. Why? Well, The key to a healthy
1: plant-based diet is variety. So if we learn to prepare and cook a wide range of vegetables, fruit, whole grains, and legumes every day, it's like a really essential part of our journey towards a healthy whole food plant-based diet, okay? Right now in the world, um, our food system depends on a very narrow variety of plants. I think corn, wheat, and rice account for like 50% of all calories consumed in the world right? There are 250,000 different plants that are fit for human consumption. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying we need to eat 250,000 different plants, Rip, but variety is really important because when you build in that variety, you're maximizing your intake of a wide range of plant-derived nutrients, antioxidants, complex carbohydrates, different different mixes of amino acids, And the beneficial fats that are naturally occurring in fruits and vegetables and legumes, and of course, we can talk a bit about it later too. The diversity concept is also really key to unlocking a healthy gut microbiome. Let's come back to the microbiome later because that's going to be that's going to blow people's minds.
0: I want to come back to that, and I want to come back to you know short chain fatty acids and how important that is because I love for our listeners to really grasp that and understand that. So number two is. Doctor's prescription top 10 is ditch the junk. Yeah, ditch the junk, man. Ultra processed food,
1: junk food, also known as junk. Okay. Okay. So the food industry since the 1950s has been shooting out mass produced cakes and pastries and chips and crisps and soft drinks and candy bars and chicken nuggets and meatballs and all these foods that are cheap to make, pumped full of artificial chemicals to make them taste like food and stay stay, um, shelf stable and in most cases they are you by consuming them well in all cases i would think you are missing out on the all those benefits of whole foods while you are increasing your intake of added sugar unhealthy fats and salt sodium and then we add to that the artificial flavors and sweeteners and emulsifiers that we know are bad news for our health and bad news for our gut health. And for me, when I look at the evidence, I see that our current junk food obsession, which means that 60% of calories consumed in the US come from ultra processed foods. For one in five people in the UK, they get 80% of the calories from this stuff. This stuff poses a real and present danger to our health, and also has negative effects on the gut microbiome. I'm going to mention it again, because it runs like a thread through the book.
0: Real. You said real and present danger. It sounds like a Tom Clancy novel. We'll return with Dr. Desmond in a sec, but holy moly, guys and gals, you really showed up last week when we announced our 10th anniversary stock event was open for registration. And I want to thank those who jumped in so quickly to this event that's scheduled for September 8th through the 12th. If you'd like to join in, I want you to know it's not too late for our special 10th anniversary pricing. And this is because we want everyone, and I mean everyone, to have access to this educational summit. This year's event is gonna be online, streaming once again from the Esselstyn Family Farm in upstate New York. This is an excellent primer for anyone that's interested in learning the science and the practical application of a plant-based lifestyle. So gather up your friends and family and invite them to join us as we stream talks and cooking demos from the farm, again, September 8th through the 12th. To see all the speakers and the special content, go to planstrong.com planstock today. Also, I have another great email that I want to share with all of you. This one is from John Havonek and he writes... Dear Esselstyn family, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for helping me turn my life around. I have lost over 50 pounds in about nine weeks. I just had my annual checkup with lab work, and both my doctor and I were amazed. I am now off my high blood pressure meds, no more statins, no more stomach pills for indigestion, and now the hard part of keeping it up. I came across a YouTube video of Dr. Estelston where he said, if half of this is true, how could you not try it? Attached are my lab results that are living proof this incredible nine week journey works. On behalf of myself, John C. Havanek, and my wife and daughter, thank you. Well, thank you, John. And look what you did. You are a prime example of what's possible when you get in the driver's seat for your health and you harness the power of plants. For anyone listening, we have a full array of resources to help you with the hard parts. Simply visit plantstrong.com or join our free online community at community.plantstrong.com. Now let's get back to Dr. Alan Desmond. All right, prescription number three is eat whole grains every
1: day. Why? It's so important. This is one of the questions in that I ask every patient. Okay, In the book, I talk about the three questions I ask every patient that comes to my clinic, and this is one of them. How many servings of whole grains do you eat every day? And sadly, a lot of the time, I end up explaining to people what I mean by a whole grain, because it's not really something that's been on their radar. Which is a pity because eating whole grains every day substantially increases your chances of a healthier gut and a longer and healthier life there was a review this is one of the most awesome reviews ever in terms of what one food can do to your health okay so there's a big systematic review a couple of years ago looking at the effect that regular whole grain consumption has on your health And they concluded, and I might be quoting slightly wrong here, but they quoted, whole grain intake is associated with reduced risk of dying of heart disease, cancer, mortality from all causes, respiratory disease, infectious disease, diabetes, all causes of death, non-cardiovascular and non-cancer. Basically, if you eat whole grains every day, you are going to live a longer life statistically. And it's not just about like whole grain bread or high fiber uh, breakfast cereals. So those those are great things to eat. I would like people to kind of think about the diversity point here as well. Barley, brown rice, millet, oats, frika, buckwheat, popcorn. It's a whole grain, mm-hmm. and you know, breakfast is a great time of day to get your whole grains in. So you know, porridge or you know, a rips big bowl or something. Great way to start today. Get those whole grains in
0: early. So you're liking.
1: Intact
0: whole grains,
1: right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, intact whole grains. I mean, when we process whole grains, when we puff them, um, it it tends to increase their surface area. So, although they they may still technically be a whole grain, um, they kind of behave a little bit more like a processed sugar when we consume them. Yeah. So, so I'm talking about brown rice and millet and frica and those sorts of things. I'm talking about like on the plate still looking like a whole grain.
0: Yeah. Little round circles, little round balls for the most part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me ask you this regarding that point, whole grains, because, you know, there seems to be, especially, you know, in the keto paleo camp, a lot of noise right now around why, you know, whole grains or or grains are bad. They're inflammatory. They, you know, there's gluten, there's lectins. Uh, How would you address that?
1: Well, I I think, you know, a lot of the people who rail against um, whole grains, Um, spend a lot of time looking at potential mechanisms, but they don't look at what's going on in the real world. And when we look at the population data, we see that whole grain consumption alongside bean consumption is one of the key markers of a healthy diet. And as I said a moment ago, a huge meta-analysis published a couple of years ago found that people who eat whole grains regularly are, eat, have longer, healthier lives, and are substantially reduced risk of numerous cancers and diseases, including colorectal cancer. So, if they were so bad for us, then how come they're making us so healthy? It doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense, right?
0: No, it, it 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 really doesn't. I mean, but but would in in your profession as a gastroenterologist, you probably see people that truly have a, a gluten intolerance. Uh, Oh, sure, sure. I mean, there's,
1: there's some people who need to avoid gluten containing whole grains. um, And that would be mostly wheat containing whole grains. So gluten is, um, glutens technically are a family of proteins that are found in certain um, plants. Um, There is a gluten in wheat called gliadin. And Mm -hmm. some people develop an immune reaction to gliadin. And other gluten's, so they do need to avoid eating whole grain wheat or any wheat-containing product, which we sometimes just call a gluten-containing product. I,
0: I have, I have, I have a quick little acronym for one. It's, typically, it's brow. It's 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 barley. It's rye. It's contaminated oats, and then it's of course wheat.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. But I want them to embrace other whole grains. So at my clinic, when we have someone who has a diagnosis of celiac disease, we, you know, they work with the dietitians to make sure that they're getting those naturally gluten-free whole grains as part of their daily intake, because it's going to really benefit them. We, I would rather they weren't eating the kind of like expensive processed gluten-free products. I would rather they're just eating a naturally gluten-free diet in the ideal world.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Let's move on from whole grains to why we want to embrace carbohydrates.
1: Whole Whole carbohydrates. I mean, it's a little bit of an overlap with whole grains here, but I thought this was worth putting in the book because of all this carb phobia like being plant strong, joining the plant-based diet revolution does not involve avoiding carbohydrates. In fact, it's the opposite, right? By eating plenty of whole carbohydrates, you're giving your body the fiber, the fuel, and the nutrients it needs. In fact, if you deprive yourself of these whole carbohydrates, whole grains, whole fruits, Whole vegetables—you are cutting out some of the most beneficial foods known to nutritional science. Oats, rice, whole grains, bananas, strawberries, apples, potatoes—these are incredibly beneficial foods. And of course, you know, um, through my practice and also through some of the online courses that I run with um, my friends Stephen and David Flynn, who you were speaking with recently, the Happy Pear Boys. I mean some of the one of the most common mistakes that I see and I'm sure you see this too is people who have read about the health benefits of a whole food plant-based diet and then they embark on their own plant-based journey but they try to combine it with low carbohydrate because they still believe the hype that low carbohydrate is going to be healthier in and it's just not they end up feeling hungry and lethargic because they're depriving themselves of themselves of all of these benefits so in the meal plans in my book, you get about 60 to 70 percent of your calories from whole carbohydrates, which the science tells us that by making these healthy carbohydrates a mainstay of your daily diet, you're just gonna make it healthier.
0: Yeah. Well, and as human beings, I mean, we we that's what we, we run off of, right? We run Absol- off absolutely.
1: Our- absolutely. I mean, there's a really I mean there's so much research we could talk about this, but there's like a paper published just this week, some research findings. Um, they just found like a Neanderthal um, burial ground somewhere. I was reading this in the newspaper yesterday. And so they examined their enamel of their teeth. Yep. And they were starchivores. They were, they were predominantly eating starch. And that's why they became, you know, that's why they thrived. You know, our, our brains can only run on starch. Really, in the, in the normal day to day, it and you know there's um, there's cells in our kidneys that need glucose. Our red blood cells need glucose. They can't run on anything else. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and when we look at like the healthiest, most long-lived populations in the world, like the Okinawans, the traditional Okinawans, seventy percent of their calories coming from from carbohydrates, whole carbohydrates. So it's um, yeah, that this whole carb phobia's got to end, right?
0: But I I will say that, unfortunately, people don't know, most people don't know the difference between a whole carbohydrate and a processed carbohydrate, or they just, they they, they need to be educated and understand that fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and potatoes, potatoes, not your enemy, right? It's, it's typically, it's what you're putting on your potato.
1: (laughs) That's it, man. I mean, you know, carbohydrates don't, you know, whole carbohydrates don't make you fat. Lean protein doesn't make you skinny. And, you know, fat and skinny shouldn't be your goal anyway. It should just be about being a really healthy person. Um, so, yeah, there's so much diet confusion out there. And that's that that's part of the, my mission on social media in my public advocacy. And now it now embodied in the book is trying to cut through all of this confusion, make it really simple for
0: people. Super simple, super simple. So prescription number five is choose your protein wisely. So can you really get all the protein you need from plants? I mean, where are you going with this, with this particular prescription?
1: Well, with this prescription, it's twofold, okay? Number one, yes, people who eat an unprocessed plant-based diet will get enough protein, okay? The average adult requires about 40 or 50 grams of protein per day. So for example, um, research in Canada back in 2014 looked at dietary intakes in like tens of thousands of non-vegetarians and about 6,000 strict vegetarians or vegans. And what they found was that the strict vegetarians were consuming about 70 grams of protein per day. Yeah. So they were exceeding their daily protein needs. In fact, the top 5% were consuming 100 grams of protein per day. Oh, oh, oh. wow. Yeah. But these, these weren't like guys in the gym slamming protein shakes. These were just people eating food. And that's the key because all plants contain protein and not all only do all plants contain protein, all plants contain all 20 amino acids that your body needs to build the protein that makes up 15% of your human body. So this, this whole concept that plants don't contain enough protein is not scientifically based the whole concept that vegans and vegetarians need to be super careful to include whole protein foods like soy and quinoa. It's not, I mean, those are great foods. Don't get me wrong, but it's not evidence-based. It's just not scientifically accurate. I mean, the American health or, excuse me, the American medical association admitted as much, you know, like I think about 18 or 19 years ago when they issued their dietary guidelines to avoid heart disease. And they talked about the benefits of vegetarian dietary patterns, but they mentioned the, uh, the whole protein myth. And I believe it was Dr. John McDougall wrote to them and said, hey, that's not true. Right. What you said there isn't true. And they wrote back and the letter was published in Nutrients. And they said, oh, yes, you're right, actually. If you eat you know, five servings of whole grains and five servings of fruit and veg every day, you'll get all the amino acids you need. But somehow that myth persists. And I hear doctors and dietitians repeat that myth all the time. I was recently asked to contribute to an article that was published in an Irish national newspaper And it was about protein and vegetarianism and veganism. And I put in that statement that despite, you know, that the oft repeated myth that vegans need to eat complete proteins is just a myth and not based on evidence,
0: but they didn't publish in the, publish it in the article because they didn't believe me. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) No, it, it, it is crazy how this myth persists. And, um, we got to do everything we can to if it. if
1: it persisted, why did the Eat Lancet report tell us that animal products are optional? Why is the UN calling for us to reduce or eliminate meat from our diet to prevent the pandemic? Why do the official dietary guidelines for newly diagnosed patients with type 2 diabetes in the UK
0: tell us to prescribe a plant-based diet? Well, well, well good, good points. Let me ask you this. How many patients have you seen that have come into you that are, that are protein deficient? If somebody is capable of consuming enough calories
1: yeah so they're a generally healthy person never right right it 's only in very very I mean you know sadly because I work in the hospital yeah. I, I meet people at the extremes of human health so if you are if you have a very advanced disease process whereby you 're not consuming enough calories or you 're not able to consume enough calories that 's when protein Deficiency becomes a problem, but how many patients do I see at my clinic every year who have fiber deficiency or folate deficiency, magnesium deficiency, potassium deficiency? you know, these nutrients that are more, um, abundant on a whole food plant-based diet. Of course, I, I see patients like that every day of the week.
0: Yeah. Well, what's interesting the other day, I looked up to see how many people worldwide died from lightning each year, roughly. And guess what the answer was? I I don't know, twenty? I don't know. Seven. 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 Oh my goodness. Worldwide, right? Wow. And it just it's like so your your chances of protein deficiency are less than getting hit by lightning, right? For the most part. So kind of yeah.
1: if 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 you are eating fruits and vegetables and legumes and nuts and seeds and eating food like you eat and your family consume and like I consume and the recipes in your book, the recipes in my book, you know, if you're eating like the healthiest people in the world, you will not become protein deficient. It's impossible. I mean, we talked about the Eat Lancet report earlier, um, you know, Rip, and, you know, I talked about, you know, 39 experts hand picked from, you know, August institutes like Harvard and the University of Oxford and They reviewed all this evidence and they published this huge analysis and there's charts and graphs. There's a glossy PDF. There's an action plan for governments. When I talk to patients in the in the UK or maybe in the US and I show them this plan, they go, really, that's how we should eat to be healthy. That seems crazy to me. But if you go to a really healthy country and if you go to a population of people like the Seventh-day Adventists, or you know, if you go to the Nicoya Peninsula or whatever, or one of these blue zones, and you, sh- or if you go to rural Africa where nobody gets colon cancer or diverticular disease or heart disease, and if you say, "Look, thirty-eight experts, two years of," they'd say, "Why did you waste your time? That's how we eat. Go away, <laughs> annoying person. You know, it's like I can't believe you spent all this time writing this report. Why don't you just come to my house for dinner?"
0: yeah. yeah. But so six, take a B twelve supplement. Kind of basic there, right? Crucial, man.
1: Absolutely crucial. Um, you know, B- B12 deficiency is common in adults in the US over the age of 50, um, vegan or vegetarian. We've seen data in a vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore. We've seen data now out of Europe showing that among health conscious young people, vegans are less likely to be B12 deficient. Why? Because they're they're smart, they're tuned in, and they're taking their B12. Do you what do you recommend? How many micro micrograms a, a, a week? Yeah, well, for years, I've been recommending that people just take um, cyanocobalamin, 25 micrograms per day, Mm -hmm. um, which is a perfectly reasonable dose for like 95% of people. And I have very, very rarely seen a patient develop B12 deficiency at that dose. But of course, those patients have the advantage that they're coming to see me and getting their levels checked. So if if you're just taking a SUP, and you're never going to get your levels checked, for for whatever reason, then you know, dose of two fifty mics once a day it'd give you that little bit of extra insurance. But generally, my practice I think twenty five mics of Cobalamin seems to do the trick.
0: Perfect. Prescription number eight. Remember, milk is for babies.
1: Oh yeah. Well, we we
0: skipped seven, which we're, which I think is oh, no. cut out this, it, It's it's cut out the sweet stuff. Yes, it is. Let, we, we need to talk about that for a sec. Yes, please please.
1: So our primitive monkey brains enjoy sugar, (laughs) there's no getting away from it. Okay. But there's no getting away from the fact either that purified sugar is just not a healthy choice. Dietary guidelines all over the world tell us that purified sugar should be less than 5% for total energy intake. But right now adults eat twice as much of that as that getting like 50 to 60 grams or 12 to 15 teaspoons of added sugar per day. So I, it, it, it's empty calories. It can have pro-inflammatory effects. And basically it also causes difficulties with, you know, insulin shifts is just an unnatural way to consume food. So look, I'm not saying you can never have a sweet or a pastry, but you know, just try and go for something a little bit healthier. Like in my book, we've got tons of really nice high fiber, sweet treats like carrot cake balls and little flapjacks or a bowl of fruit with like a soy yogurt and tahini dip. These things are delicious and they are far more satisfying. They're packed with fiber and, and all the good stuff. Um, so yeah, cut it the sweet stuff,
0: people. I suppose that all that refined sugar is also contributing to the non-alcoholic fatty liver
1: disease. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so refined sugar and animal products are the two major drivers of that. Now we use a little bit of maple syrup in the book on, no. some of the, on some of the desserts, but it's like a lit, really small amount. And I, I'm confident that with time, people will realize that it's actually the taste of the fruit and the ingredients and you know the cacao and the nuts or whatever else, that's what they enjoy. It's that unprocessed taste of healthy plants put together in a really tasty way. That's what your body's craving.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I want you to address before we move on to the remember that milk is for babies, Uh, prescription number eight, is there's a whole segment of the population that's either keto or paleo that is truly afraid right now of having a piece of fruit. I was talking to a woman just the other day who hadn't had a piece of fruit in eight months. And I just find this to be absolutely egregious on a number of different levels and was wondering if you could speak to your opinion on fruit and if it's harmful or beneficial.
1: Well, In terms of the diseases that put us into hospital and deprive us of years of healthy life, then fruit's incredibly beneficial. Fruit consumption reduces the risk of obesity, significantly reduces risk of developing type two diabetes, and also significantly reduces risk of developing colorectal cancer. So these are healthy foods. Fruits are super healthy. They're super good for us. Um, in contrast, okay, there, there's so much science we could talk about here. I'm just going to give you two quick ones, okay? Yeah. So a, a, a couple just a couple of months ago here in the UK, the Oxford Biobank, incredibly respected team of researchers who have been tracking data on half a million UK adults for a decade. There's only 44 million adults in the UK, RIP, so that's like a significant chunk of the population spread all the way throughout the country. And they just published a paper a few weeks ago where they looked at the top 25 reasons for being admitted to hospital among these 500,000 people followed for almost a decade. And they correlated that with their diet and lifestyle, family history, smoking, exercise, body weight, et cetera, but also their consumption of red meat, processed meat and poultry. Yeah, okay. So the top 25 reasons to be hospitalized are exactly what you'd expect. Um, Heart disease, stroke, um, pneumonia, diverticular disease, perforated, peptic ulcer, you know, the things that people end up in hospital with, right? Type two diabetes, et cetera. In 24 out of 25 conditions, which are the main things that are going to land you in a hospital in your life, meat consumption either had zero benefit or increased your risk.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. In, no, like in 24 out of 25, meat did not make you healthier. It either didn't help you at all or it made you more likely to be hospitalized. So why would you adopt a diet that is only made up of those foods. It's insane. You can, and sure you can lose weight, you can get thinner, you can consume fewer calories. But last year, Kevin Hall and his team in the US admitted um, groups of volunteers to a metabolic ward. They put them on a whole food plant-based diet for, for two weeks. They put them on a very low carb, high fat keto diet for two weeks, and they measured everything. Yeah. Okay. Incredible paper, Kevin Hall, look it up. What did they find? Well, look, yeah, everybody lost some weight. Okay. So everybody, if they were doing this at home, they would have stood on the scales and go, yeah, it's working. I'm losing weight. The book I bought was right. But what they saw was that among the, the low-fat whole food plant-based diet group, when they were doing that, they were losing body fat, mm-hmm. which is beneficial. In the keto group, they were losing water and muscle. Who wants to lose muscle in middle age? Okay. You don't want to be losing muscle. And also when they were eating the keto, the low carb, high fat diet, they consumed far more calories each day because you were allowed to eat as much food as you wanted on this study. So they consumed far more calories. They lost weight, but not fat. As I said, their insulin resistance increased their inflammatory markers increased and their LDL cholesterol, their bad cholesterol jumped their LDL cholesterol jumped by probably more than your total cholesterol is, you know? So, so on every measure that matters in terms of long health and healthy life, the keto folks do badly. And then you pair that kind of that, you know, that, uh, that interventional data with what happens in the real world And you see studies like published out of Harvard a couple of years ago, where they followed a group of adults for a quarter of a century. And they found that people who eat a low carb dietary pattern, favoring things like lamb and beef and pork and chicken, were far more likely to die during the 25 years of the study. Mm -hmm. They estimated that the average 50 year old doing a low carb diet with lamb and beef and pork and chicken would take four or five years off their life expectancy. Yeah, yeah. So number eight, remember that milk is for babies. Okay, milk is for babies. I mean, when I say this to patients in my clinic, milk is for babies is one of the things that I enjoy saying to my patients, okay? Because lactose intolerance is incredibly common. Yeah, I see a lot of patients at my clinic with a lot of bloating and abdominal distension and digestive discomfort or constipation. And when I take a brief dietary history from them, if they're consuming a lot of milk and dairy, I actively encourage them as their first dietary change to take a break from dairy and to maybe, and I told them what dairy means to them. And it might be about going to oat milk and, or having black coffee instead of milky coffee. And when they, they say, are you sure this is okay? I, I roll it out, Rip. I say, remember, milk is for babies, it's not for grown-ups yeah. and most people have this little moment where they go oh yeah you're right actually milk is for babies i'm not sure why i drink so much of it and it, often for my patients that will be the first dietary change that they make that results in a significant improvement in their digestive health because you know three quarters of adults lack the enzyme required to digest dairy foods and when they consume them they get bloating and abdominal symptoms and then we know that, you know, when it comes to calcium, for example, we know that it's healthier to get your calcium from plant-based sources like broccoli and tofu, nuts and beans. Those are healthier foods. So I have got no hesitation whatsoever. Ask my patient,
0: reminding my patients
1: that milk is for babies.
0: Do you have a preference when it comes to plant-based milks that you uh, offer your patients or just... What, what, when I'm speaking to my patients,
1: Rip, I basically just tell them to go to the supermarket and shop around because I want them to find when they like the taste of. And for me, any plant milk that my patient will use to replace dairy milk in their diet is a good option for them. Personally, I like an, like an, like an, um, an unfortified oat milk, an unsweetened unfortified oat milk. Uh, it just suits my, my, my taste. Um, I'll have that in my, my evening cup of tea, um, no problem. What
0: brand? Is that an
1: Oatly? Yeah, we use oatly here in my house and sometimes we make our own. Sometimes we make our own, we just whip it up. You know, it's it's really simple. I mean, there's there's gizmos you can get to make oat milk, but you know, it's also like super simple to make with just like water and oats basically in a strainer. Um but yeah, pro- my pre- my preference is for oats, but look at whatever non-dairy milk you choose is going to be a healthier option than dairy milk.
0: I love the oats. You know, the oats are just naturally they're they're, they're very sweet. They're about 18% fat, 18% protein. I, I just love oats. I, I could be a horse. I really could. Yeah, yeah. yeah man. Well, I love oats too. And I, I think
1: um, for me, I drink black coffee in the daytime. But in the evening, um, I like to have a nice cup of tea with a little bit of oat milk. So yeah. It does me fine.
0: All right. Let's move on to number nine. And that is don't forget your sunshine vitamin. Vitamin D. And this isn't a vegan thing or a yep. vegetarian thing whether
1: you're completely plant-based flexitarian or omnivore, you are at risk of vitamin D deficiency because of our modern lifestyles. Okay. We spend time indoors. We're not out in the sunshine. We need 20 to 40 minutes of bright sunshine on our skin every day to make sufficient vitamin D. And if we're not getting enough vitamin D, the, the science tells us we've got an increased risk of fracture, cognitive impairment, poor dental health, reduced muscle mass, falls, cancer, Poor outcomes in inflammatory bowel disease, heart disease, high blood pressure. Vitamin D is a really important vitamin. It's a, it's a hormone, in fact, that we need in our bodies. So I work at the hospital. So, and I live in the UK. Okay. Uh, so if it, even if it's sunny, it's not that sunny. And if it is sunny, I'm probably at the hospital anyway. So in, in the UK, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition recommends that everybody should supplement with vitamin D um, during the winter months or year round if you work indoors. Um, so I usually recommend people to take about 800 to a thousand international units, which is 20 to 25 mics of
0: vitamin D each day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't get over the way you say vitamin, vitamin, it's <laughs> vitamin. <laughs> that, that's very, uh, that's very UK. Uh, it is, it is. Yeah. Um, right. That's
1: how we say it in, in
0: Ireland as well. Actually, vitamin, okay. vitamin. So the last one is get help if you need it. What do you mean by this? Oh, it's, it's so important. I mean, the whole
1: purpose of the book, the plant-based diet revolution and the plant strong movement, of course, is to learn exactly why a plant-based diet can substantially reduce your risk of illness and can help to treat and reverse so many chronic diseases. I see this played out in my clinic all the time. Okay, it's super healthy thing to do. But if you're having problems, even if you are a super healthy person, you've got it all dialed in. If you're having digestive problems or unexplained symptoms, just go and see your doctor. Just have a conversation with your doctor. Even if they know nothing about nutrition, Rip, they'll be able to examine your tummy, do the basic lab work, maybe refer you to see a gastroenterologist like me just to get things checked out. Just because low risk is not no risk. So just, just be mindful. Your doctor is never, it, you know, your doctor's always on your team. Basically.
0: Um, if you've got health concerns, go
1: and chat to your doc.
0: Good. Love those top 10. That is, that's fantastic. Let me ask you this in your book. You, you wanted to thank all of your patients for starting you on this journey, but also for inspiring you. Were, were your, was it your patients that gave you that Galileo moment? Cause 100%. Not, Cause not all doctors, uh, have this kind of passion towards it. So something happened along the, either medical school or internship or residency or, or somewhere. Yeah. it When back in about 2000, I'd graduate med school in 2001.
1: And in 2004, I was on my first gastro rotation. So I was the like the most junior medical doctor on a team of doctors and nurses and dietitians taking care of inpatients with severe gastrointestinal problems. And I remember this one young man he's about 19 years old who was hospitalized with Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease. So this is a condition whereby sections of your bowel become red and sore and inflamed and diseased. It can cause abdominal pain, diarrhea, anemia, weight loss, and inability to eat. It's a a medical condition that's, that's very strongly related to the standard Western diet and lifestyle. But I didn't know that then. So right. three, three days in to this young man's treatment, he's on powerful immune suppressive drugs and steroids to tamp down the inflammation in his gut. And we're doing the ward round. We come to see this young man at the bedside and he's feeling better. The treatment is working. And he turns to us, the medical team and to my boss, the attending and says, what about food? Is there anything I should eat, anything I should avoid? And my boss at that time turned to the patient and said, it doesn't matter. You need calories right now. Eat whatever you like. And his mom, who was at the bedside, said, really? And my boss said, really? Does he like McDonald's? Why don't you bring him in at McDonald's? That was the thinking at the time, Rip that calories were just calories and it didn't matter for your digestive health what, what, where- you,
0: What, is this year 1901 or 2000? It's about really? 2000, 2004,
1: oh. about, about 2004. Yeah, so relatively recently, right? Okay. But it didn't, it didn't make sense to the patient or his mother. At that time, I would, like, I'm like. i the most junior guy on the team. You know, I'm not gonna put my hand up and say, really, is that true? But as I went through my career and I decided I wanted to be a gastroenterologist, I, was, I noticed that every single patient would ask the same question when they're faced with whether it's you know, diverticular disease, precancerous colon polyps, colorectal cancer, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Patients who have GI problems ask their GI doctor, what about food? We all know intuitively that the food we eat has got a lot to do with our gut health and our overall health. So as I went through my training, I would look at those papers too. They're in the mainstream medical journals, alongside the, the articles about medication and surgery and colonoscopy. The, the answer to that question is in the same medical journals. And by the time I became a consultant gastroenterologist in 2012, and now my name is on the patient's chart and it's my responsibility to help them to get the best possible outcome. When my patients started asking me, what about food doc? Cause they all do. I didn't tell them that it didn't matter. I started telling my patients that it really did matter. And I started asking about fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, and pointing them towards dietary guidelines and resources that could help them to move towards a more whole food, plant-based diet. And the, the real Galileo moment for me, Rip, I'm glad to say, happened at my clinic all the time. Mm. Can I give you an example? Can I give you a story from my clinic just a couple of weeks ago? Please. A young woman with ulcerative colitis, so, this is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. Her large bowel is very inflamed. I met her, she'd had this condition for about a year. She was in her first pregnancy, and the condition was raging. She couldn't eat. She you, was having to
0: Can you actually see this? Like when 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 you put a tube in? Yeah, that's exactly it. Exactly. So, so she's rushing to the bathroom 12 times
1: a day. She can't eat. She's got abdominal pain. She's anemic. She's pregnant. She's early in her first pregnancy and she's worried about how this is going to go. Sure. Of course. Right. Not only that rip, she's developed gestational diabetes. So insulin resistance magnified by pregnancy. So she's having to inject herself with insulin and check her, check her blood sugars four times a day, which she's never had to do before. So I hadn't been involved in her care previously, but she came to see me at a couple of emergency clinics and we're getting on in her pregnancy now, she's on medication, she's on steroids, she's not getting much better and we're looking at giving her an immune suppressant drug. We try to avoid using these in pregnancy, but when people are really poorly and really unwell, we will say, yes, best thing to do is to treat the inflammation, let's do it. So she asks me, what about food? Is there anything that I can eat or avoid? And we talked about food and I talked to her about plant-based and I pointed towards, um, some resources, including, I think the Canadian healthy eating guidelines, which are essentially whole food plant-based and we agree a two week break, we're not going to start the immune suppressants, come back and see me in two weeks, go and see what happens with the food thing. See in two weeks, she comes back two weeks later and I remember she, she tells me that she was so happy that she could cry. Her bowel habit was more normal than it had been for years. And her blood sugar control was better. Now she had gone out of the room and she was one of these patients who just went for it. She got some cookbooks and she changed to a whole food plant-based diet from a standard Western diet overnight. Mm -hmm. That's a Galileo moment when you are able to put away the prescription pad for a couple of days and talk to your patient about food. So she got through the rest of her pregnancy without having to escalate her drugs, without having to take the potent immunosuppressants. And then a good sign, she kind of slipped off my radar for a little while. She yeah. didn't need to see me anymore. But I met her about three weeks ago at clinic. And so she come back to see me at clinic, it's a routine thing. And I said, look, I haven't seen you for a year, that's got to be a good thing. How are you? And she's like, oh, I'm fantastic. I haven't had any symptoms from my colitis since I made the change. And we can measure the level of gut inflammation present by doing a stool test called a fecal calprotectin. So her fecal calprotectin is normal and level and has been since she changed her diet. She's on very little medication at all. And better than that, when I met her a couple of weeks ago, she's in the final stages of her second pregnancy.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: OK? She hasn't had any flares of her colitis in the second pregnancy. And because she'd had type two, or excuse me, gestational diabetes in her first pregnancy, she was at a high risk of having it again, so she would have to check her blood sugars every day and go to the clinic once a week at the start of the second pregnancy. Mm. And after a few weeks, they told her she didn't have to come anymore. Because she didn't get gestational diabetes in her second pregnancy. So that's a Galileo moment. And uh, you know, for practitioners like me, for doctors like me and the other doctors you've spoken to, and the other doctors you know, like your dad, mm-hmm. okay, it's like moments like that at clinic, which become pretty routine. You know, that's why we become so passionate about this. That's why we, you know, talk to people and stand on stages and do Zoom meetings and yeah. you know write books and do interviews because we need to get this info out there not just to the public and to patients but also to our fellow health professionals and well, policy and policymakers.
0: Well, and it, as a as a physician and the job you signed up for, it's to get your patients better, and so this is obviously the best medicine going right. How, yep. how gratifying for you. Incredible. Right? Because when we want to get
1: our patients healthier, we've got to, we don't want to leave any toolboxes in the box. Okay. Medications, incredible. Surgery, incredible. Colonoscopy, incredible. Vaccinations, incredible. But let's not forget about the number one driver of disease and disability in the Western world, world, food. Right. Food, food, food. Every doctor should be talking to their patient about food
0: and the number one driver of what can cure us, food, food, food. Isn't Alan just great? It's it's not often that you can sit with a doctor who is able to explain the why behind all of their tips. And I think you'll agree that he has done his research on all of the major studies that are out there. And one of the most exciting things to me is that professional societies around the world are finally starting to get on the same page with this revolution, the plant-based revolution. And I am just so happy that you are able to be a part of this massive paradigm shift that's, that's happening before our eyes. Next week, we'll be back with part two of Dr. Desmond's interview. We're gonna dig into the nitty gritty and learn how and why health really does start in the gut. We'll do a deeper dive on the microbiome, and we'll talk bugs, short-chain fatty acids, and even the gut-brain connection. Yes, as incredible as it seems, what you eat can affect your moods. Fascinating stuff. So until next week, go fill up those 10 prescriptions, and we'll see you back here for a follow-up visit next week. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. Have you had your own Galileo moment that you'd like to share? What happened? when you stepped into the arena and shed the beliefs that you thought to be true. I'd love to hear about it. Visit plantstrongpodcast.com to submit your story and to learn more about today's guests and sponsors. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Cordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision, and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Doctor Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.